and I've already started recording. Oh, good. <laughs> Out of an recording is of recording is always a good part that's, of, of doing a podcast. That's a, an important part of the successful podcast. Yes. Yeah. It, Greetings across whatever you listen to podcasts on. This is the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. It's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent films. I'm your host, Ben Modell. I'm a silent film composer and accompanist, historian, educator, home video label, etc., etc. This is episode 4666. We are recording the beginning of March 2022, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host and co-producer, Kerr Lockhart. Hi, Kerr. Hi, Ben. How are you doing? The last week and a half have been pretty, pretty crazy, and I'm just trying to slowly come down from it. The big one was the Kansas Silent Film Festival. You know, yeah, I, I had not been there in a few years, and this was a big year for them. I got on a plane Thursday the 24th after having done an Edward Everett Horton Comedy Shorts live stream for the Cinema Arts Center on the 22nd. Then the next day, going up to Wesleyan and doing, what did we do? Oh, serials and westerns. And then the Kansas Silent Film Festival. It was great to go and be somewhere else doing a show. I had not been on a plane since the beginning of November when I was out in South Dakota the festival was really well attended and it was really touching to see the number of people wearing silent comedy watch party shirts or pinbacks coming up to me and thanking me for doing the silent comedy watch party. It's a chance to connect with people in person, not just for me, but for them to connect with me. They've been watching me for two years almost now and to tell me how much it's meant to have the show there. In that way, it was very heartwarming for me, just completely aside from getting to play for a few different things in a few different venues and on a few different instruments. Yes, it's good to know that there's somebody out there on the other end. Well, yeah, I mean, I we know from, you know, Mana always watches the numbers at, on YouTube, so we know, the num- but a number is not the same thing. I, this is why I, at the end of every show I tell people when you post a comment, tell us where you're from, and, and it's nice when I get up in front of an audience and I see a bunch of one-handed waves, and I know, <laughs> okay, that's my people there. Um, <laughs> that didn't happen so much in Kansas, but certainly at some of the shows in MoMA, that's happened. Thing, what would happen at the Kansas Silent Film Festival was that there were a handful of the of the the comedy shorts that were shown that Denise Morrison, who's one of the, you know, she does a lot of the programming along with Bill Schaefer, in her intro, she said, oh, I first saw this on the Silent Comedy Watch Party, <laughs> and and she just mentioned this, the Watch Party a, a number of times. There was a, a woman who came up to me on Friday. And she said, my husband and I were sitting behind you, and there you were in front of us at a piano, and the screen is behind you. She said, it was like we were watching the Silent Comedy Watch Party, but in person. <laughs> Hearing this from people over and over in person, for them to just to see each other and them to tell them how this show helped get them through the pandemic, it just lands even more than getting an email or a, or a YouTube comment, as, as, as wonderful as that is. So it, it was fun to get to go play. And, and it's always useful for me to hear other people play, whether I'm listening and I think, oh, I, I should steal that idea that, that, that <laughs> could take me, or, oh, that's an interesting way of handling that scene, or it just gets me out of my own head and sensibilities. So hearing Bill Benningfield and uh, Marvin Falwell, both were on organ and Jeff Rapsis on piano, it's always good. I, I forget that until I go to something where I get to hear Philip Carley and Andrew Simpson play for things and hear other accompanists and go, oh, right. Because I'm always trying to expand the musical palette. Even if people don't know my music all the time, I'm at every show and it just drives me crazy sometimes. <laughs> so if I can hear some other idea or technique, do not necessarily to steal what they're doing, but it just reminds me, oh, there are other ways of handling this. What might be a big idea that's an example of another way to attack something? One of the last times I was at Cinefest up in Syracuse, I remember John Marsalis was playing for a comedy short and the way he handled the, the, the short musically, of course it works as a, a company for a comedy show, but it was something, something else besides the language that I use that I, I can expand into. It's hard to really describe it, 
just the idea of hearing other people is useful for me to grow and uh, augment. It just reminds me, oh, you can come up with something besides what you usually do. Yeah, it has to be a challenge for, you're not just a composer, you're an improviser, and that means you're always going to be playing with your own hands. I know I've heard both Paul Simon and Stephen Sondheim saying, well, they don't write at the keyboard, or in Simon's case, on the guitar, because their hands fall in a certain way. Yeah. And I don't want to let my hands dictate what I'm composing. But you have to. You just gotta, yeah. The only way you can play and is with your hands. There is, yeah, I mean, there's <laughs> only so much you can do. I mean, as much as we all may try to venture out of whatever we usually play, half a bar in, you know it's Sondheim. Mm-hmm, <laughs> it's like name that accompanist. <laughs> I can hear something on, on without knowing the credit at the end or anything on TCM. Oh, that's Donald. That's Philip. I don't know who that is. Maybe it's Machia. I watched something that I had scored on TCM and I remember thinking, oh, they got rid of my track and put something else in. That's terrible. Then I I checked. It was me. I was just playing (laughs) a little differently. As much as I do sound like myself, I don't want to feel that comfortable. I want to keep growing, even though I've been doing this as long as I have. And I imagine making a recording is an opportunity for you to go a little bit outside of your usual zone. Yeah, that had changed my my process as well. And my process, especially with scoring things on organ, is that I will stop and start over and over. And rather than try to push myself to do a reel or two at a time, I know the recordings I've heard of Lee Irwin that he did for Rohauer, especially some of the features he did. He'd do 20 minutes, you know, to be 20, 22 minutes at a time. He'd do a, a, a double, you know, a 2,000 foot reel and then stop and start up again on the next one. I suppose I could work that way, and I used to, but now that I've discovered the wonders of editing, um, (laughs) because at least with the organ software, I use the samples and the convolution reverb are separate. So I can edit the recording because the recording is dry, and as long as there's a space between one note and another, I can edit or punch in, and then the reverb will just go all over it and smooth it all out. In watching the film ahead of time, I'll make a list of stops and starts for scenes. And as a scene wraps up, I'll resolve and take my hands off the keys. And it also gives me a chance. Okay, if I need to stop here, I can and I can edit. And if if, uh, I'm in a flow, I will just keep going and fix the clamps later. So it's constantly evolving. The process is constantly evolving. And I want to make it better each time if I can. And then there's that other creative decision, since we're talking about how you're chunking your part with the film. If you've got, say, a slow fade to black and it Mm -hmm. fade in, do you echo that fade and you resolve the music or do you bridge the fade? And I'm sure that varies from film to film. Yeah, it definitely does. I'm trying to do that more, and I think I talked about this on the last episode, that I've gotten myself to a point where I can resolve with the fade on a film that I've never seen before. I can just sense that the scene is wrapping up, and I'm looking for (laughs) the exposure to slowly begin to decrease. And I'm like, okay, wrap it up. And so it will look like it's been Mm -hmm. post-scored. But there are some films where... Even though there's a fade out of an, on a scene and a fade into a title card, it's still part of the same dramatic sequence, so you might not want to stop there. Beverly of Graustark, the first third or first half of the picture, are nothing but individual scenes that fade and finish. Mm-hmm. And there was this moment about halfway or two-thirds of the way in where all of a sudden, instead of stopping and starting having specific musical cues, I was just doing my usual thing for about 15, 20 minutes and then stopping. Part of what I'm playing with in trying to find these endpoints is there is a tendency, and I know I'm guilty of it for many, many years, of playing a constant wash of music so that there's never a break. Mm. And in the way that intertitles can function for the human eye and brain as a little breather, I'm playing with whether or not putting stops in the music between scenes is useful or not. All right, so before you were flying off to Kansas, you visited a venue you haven't been in person in two years. Yeah, that would be St. Francis College. I've been doing silent films there 
it's been five or six years. Okay. Um, <laughs> and it started out playing for a class in the auditorium. And actually, one of the things they do, the screenings are, while they are held for a class, they invite the general public in. It's free, and they promote the screenings to nearby senior centers. So this was my first time back in almost exactly two years. And it's not a silent film course, but in this particular case, Augusta Palmer, she's also a documentarian. She was teaching a course on Westerns. Ah, so that's why what we're going to hear is for the Tollgate. That's a William S. The Tollgate, William S. Hart picture. Hart's films really haven't been available on home video and the Tollgate was something I think David Shepard produced for video and was put out on image and it's now out of print. But because it's the one that's available, it was nice being back. Signs of life, you know, I'm going back to places I haven't been in literally two years. They have a very nice instrument. It's a Steinway A. It's in really good shape. They were able to get it tuned the day before the program. What you'll hear, if anything, in, in this uh, three minutes from my live score for the Tollgate is not only a variety of moods, but the way I turn on a dime, but not in a disjointed way. The trick is always to make it work musically so that you can shift from one mode to another seamlessly. Live in performance at St. Francis College in Brooklyn, New York in mid-February. Yours truly at a Steinway A piano accompanying William S. Hart in The Tollgate. What Ben, as I listen to that, I might have even guessed that it was William S. Hart. There is something very somber and dignified. That excerpt begins with what sounds like a march or a Protestant hymn. <laughs> it, it really was very, very solemn. Oh, is that right? And okay. then, and then it, you could tell that you were going into kind of an action mode. The music went into a, a rapid mm -hmm. two. But I noticed yeah. from then on, again, keeping with that William S. Hart feeling. I don't think there was a major chord. <laughs> yeah, something <laughs> for the rest must of have it. been something. Something must have been up in the plot. Yeah, um, yeah, but, but yeah, William S. Hart is not a major chord cowboy. <laughs> not, 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 not always, mm -hmm. uh, unless he's pining over a, a young woman or weeping about something. Yeah, I, I probably the reason it's minor for the last half of the the clip is there's some trouble and intrigue probably brewing, and and that's that's what you're hearing. I don't think, oh, I'm going to play a hymn here, but it's it's definitely, I have a feeling there is some bit of character exposition or introduction with him where he's making a decision to be on the moral high ground or something like that. And so the idea is reverence. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if you'll pardon the, that's, the no, this that's partial exactly. pun. But with, with <laughs> him, even when he's an outlaw, which he often is in these films, he's an outlaw with a heart of gold. And you'll see him rob a stagecoach or a train with a few other people. But he has a moment. The way Chaplin was finding ways of stopping all the action and having a, a wistful moment or a moment of drama or character or charm in the middle of all of this, Hart did the same and it's one of the things that grounds his films. It is, it is really what distinguishes him from some of the people who came later on, like Hoot Gibson and Tom Mix. They'll push in and, and you'll hold on it, you know, loose close-up of him, and, and you see him think things through. Do I do this? Do I do that? And make a decision. And so I think setting up that reverence early on, while reinforcing it, you know, it's set up on screen and just letting the audience know I'm in on it as well. They, they should make sure that they're feeling a little reverence, just in case, mm-hmm. because there is something late Victorian era about him and his sensibilities that could come off as a little corny, and you want to make sure to help people connect with his, his sensitivity. Yeah, but he's, uh, by, he, yeah. he's both late Victorian, but he's also super modern. Yes. We've still got this template of the, of the bad man who still knows the right thing to do. Yeah, I mean, that's, and that's what I, I always tell people. He's sort of the silent movie version of, of Clint Eastwood. Mm-hmm. He's got the same, you know, shape of his face is the same. He's got mm-hmm. that squint. He's this tough guy exterior, but he's, he lets us see his softer side. So I saw in Kansas that you played in church. <laughs> yes, I did. For the film introductions, on Friday afternoon, the Kansas Silent Film Festival had their sessions at Grace Cathedral. They do something in this cathedral with Marvin Falwell at the organ every few months. The acoustics in this cathedral are amazing, and the pipe organ has a lot more reed sounds, and so there's a little bit more color and flavoring to it. Marvin, who is way more familiar than the or- with the organ than I was, really got a lot of those sounds out in his score for Tell It to the Marines, which I heard him play for there. I was just using some of the presets that he had set up and didn't have quite as much uh, of an opportunity to play with it. They also showed the new restoration of Hunchback of Notre Dame, which was accompanied by the Mont Alto Orchestra. And I remember I sat all the way in the back. I told the, the group afterwards, I wish you had been able to astrally project yourself to the back of the theater to see how good you guys sound in this space. And this score, of course, was fantastic, but the acoustics were in, in there were great. And there was a piano there, but I thought, you know, I can play a piano anywhere. The more I get a chance to sit and play a real actual pipe organ, the better it is for me in, in terms of my growth and knowing the instrument. So this was a, a screening of Scrambled Weddings with Edward Everett Horton. I'm playing the Horton shorts quite a bit right now because we're getting them booked. The last couple of times I played for Scrambled Weddings was on piano. I had a main theme for it that I could use and bring in and, and drop. And it was fun getting to hear the audience laugh. And I think you can hear some of the audience laughs in the recording that I made. Playing a pipe organ is its own thing. I mean, it's different to play the piano and to play your your the lash up. organ, yeah. 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 And yeah. then to play an electronic organ in a venue. And then the, the next category, separate category is the pipe organ. Could you maybe explicate one of some of the technical differences? With a pipe organ, especially, I mean, a pipe organ in a church, you have to be careful of or mindful of the amount of reverb in the church. So before I got on the organ just to make my way around it, I said to Barbara, how is the reverb in there? How long is it? So he told me what it was like. And there's a couple of churches I've played in with an eight-second reverb. So you would have to hit something, but you can't play too fast. Otherwise, it becomes mud. I have to remind myself, okay, let the note trail off. You don't have to, again, the constant wash of sound. And with an organ, you can hold notes anyway. So with a pipe organ, I guess you're just a little bit more limited in the tone palette. There are some pipe organs where it's just the variety of tootsie-flutsie sounds and one or two reeds. This particular instrument had a little bit more of a range. So... For me, technically, I don't think there's a huge difference in terms of the actual playing of the instrument between a theater organ that's real or the kind I travel with or a pipe organ because the physicality of two or three manuals and then the pedals is still the same and you've got your stops off to the left and right or in front of you. It's just a matter of 
with pipe organs, the stops always have slightly different names and in slightly different languages. If you were an organ major at a conservatory, you're very aware of this and probably going, I know that. Oh, come on. Don't you, you know, (laughs) but I have to sit down and translate and remind myself which keyboard goes with which set of buttons, the the pull stops tab. It it can be confusing because I just don't play organ as much as most organists do. So, but like I said, it's good exercise for me. And the more I do it, and the more I have to, it's like you know, it's like getting into a rental car and you adjust the mirrors and you pull out from the parking lot and you're like, okay. Now, where's the defroster? (laughs) Where's the defroster? I should be able to find the defroster. And then, okay, that's the defroster. No, that's the heat. Now the wipers are going. Okay, hold on. Uh, So it it, it can be kind of analogous to that. You'll get it right, and and, uh, the audience doesn't know you didn't mean to turn on that read. (laughs) But is there no delay between your hand and the the sound the pipe is making? There, there probably is, but I've gotten so used to it by this point. Even with, uh, I think when I was initially using the Meditzer, it was never immediate. There's some latency that I think might have been built in. I've played a couple of instruments where there's a slight delay, and... I think I may be at a point where the first couple of minutes I'm going, oh, right, right, yeah, (laughs) okay, got it. (laughs) And then I just relax a little bit. If I've been playing a bunch of piano shows and then I get on on an organ, there may be a very brief uh, acclimatization moment where I'm, okay, right, you don't have to play that many notes. (laughs) (laughs) You can just hold notes and back off. And, you know, and then when I go back to the piano, I have to remind myself, you don't you still don't have to play that many notes well we've heard edward everett horton music uh on the podcast before but i don't think we've heard anything for scrambled weddings and i'm positive we haven't heard anything on the organ for any of these on the pipe organ for yeah yeah sure so this is february 25th 2022 at the grace cathedral in topeka kansas accompanying a segment from scrambled weddings on the pipe organ That's yours truly, accompanying a segment from Scrambled Weddings, starring Edward Everett Horton from the two-disc DVD set, now out from Undercrank Productions, accompanying on a chance organ at the Grace Cathedral in Topeka, Kansas. Four manual, 65 rank pipe organ. If you go to gracecathedraltopeka.org, you can look up the stop list and 
have fun with that. But that's me on a pipe organ. There are recordings out there that Fats Waller did on a pipe organ. I mean, he was a movie theater organist, and, and I think he went to the uh, the studios in Camden and did cut some sides for Victor on a pipe organ. Oh, that's right. He actually considered, I'm going to speak from uh, my own knowledge, having worked for Fats yeah. Waller's attorney. Uh, that, ah! that was his favorite instrument in the world, and he loved when they asked him to come to Camden and play on that pipe organ. He considered that his first instrument. Really? Yeah. Yeah, that is something I did not know. I mean, I always tell people, oh yeah, Fats Waller and Count Basie and Carl Stalling, they all played the organ in movie theaters. But I didn't realize it was his favorite instrument. few seconds of Fats Waller playing Messing About with the Blues on the SD pipe organ found in the Trinity Baptist Church in Camden, New Jersey. Well, you were right about the recording. It was really great to hear live laughs. But I thought it was yeah. interesting, again, partway through the piece, you're doing the comedy keyboard thing. But then there's a sort of a build-up and a pause in the action, clearly, like you're yeah. building a chord. And then you went into, of all things, uh, and you're going to say, I don't remember this. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know why I did this. But it was really charming because you went into a Bowery waltz. It's fun because comedy, we're always thinking of things into umta, 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 umta is the tempo all of right. comedy. Well, all right. Educate <laughs> me and the folks and anyone listening. What's a Bowery waltz? Well, it's a waltz that's kind of rambunctious and lower class. It's not the Viennese waltz. It's uh, not a Pinky's Out waltz. The, the, okay. the, the, the Bowery itself. The Bowery. The Bowery. They say such things and they do strange things on the Bowery. The Bowery. Um it's kind of an umpapa. Yeah, yeah, umpapa. Yes, you're right. I don't remember doing that. A lot of times, <laughs> just things, they go into my eyes and they come out my hands. It's part of, I think, part of the, uh, I don't know, the Hal Roach ethos or something. Instead of having comedy push, 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 yeah, like in a two-beat. You know, Laurel and Hardy, quite often you can play a waltz to what they're doing. Well, yeah, <laughs> there's that Leroy Shields one. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 Your friend Walter yeah. Kerr described uh, yeah. Oliver Hardy as sort of moving to an unheard waltz. Oh yes, I t yeah, you can totally see that. And uh, and, so, so, and also just to break up like the boom chick, boom chick, boom chick, boom chick. And there are little moments where there's a little pinkies out sort of movement, <laughs> and, and we're all and now I'm going to call it a Bowery waltz. It fits the scene for the sake of variety, but also just to underscore whatever the comic business was at hand. The Silent Film Music Podcast is brought to you by Undercrank Productions, home of the neglected and unexpected in classic film entertainment. Lon Chaney, Before the Thousand Faces, is gathered from three of Lon Chaney's films made for Universal in 1915 and 1916. For this DVD, Chaney historian John Mersalis has selected three rare dramas, reconstructed missing footage and original titles, and is composed and performed new musical scores for each. This is the first time that A Mother's Atonement, If My Country Should Call, and The Place Beyond the Winds have been made available in several decades, and each has been newly scanned from the only surviving 35mm prints from the famous Dawson City collection. Under the Radar magazine writes, these three films are a wealth of silent film history and would make any Cheney collector quite happy. Movie Silently writes, Marsalis provides excellent musical accompaniment for each film. 
Collectors should be aware that Undercrank will be releasing a second Lon Chaney collection later in 2022, so the time to get your copy of this one is now. Produced for home video and scored by John Marcellus, an Undercrank Productions Library of Congress release in association with Greenbrier Picture Shows. Available from Amazon, Deep Discount, Critics Choice, Wow HD, and anywhere classic film is sold. Lon Chaney, Before the Thousand Faces. looking at pictures from the Kansas mm-hmm. Silent Festival. You got to talk about Marcel Perez. And I was... Yeah. The more I hear about Marcel Perez, the more interesting it is. So I'm interested in what you said to that audience, what you felt they needed to know. Well, the film that was chosen was Robinet's White Suit. It's one of the split reelers that he made by the dozens for the Ambrosio Company from 1910 to 1915. And their single joke, single concept films like that format is and was for everybody making comedy shorts in France and Italy and England, etc. At the time, you know, he's got a brand new white suit. It's nice out and he goes out and takes a walk and just about everything happens to him. I was given the honor and the opportunity to introduce the film by Denise Morrison and, and, and Bill Schaefer. And I figured I have to keep it short, but most probably folks at this festival have not heard of or seen Marcel Perez. So I gave a thumbnail sketch of his career, letting people know that for most of us silent comedy fans, discovering Marcel Perez has been a real revelation because in addition to his amazing physicality and his winning personality, he's a filmmaker. Mm. And you don't see it in the Italian films, although they are well-directed. Their camera placement and the use of depth and angles and the way things are composed is very good. He's not just pointing the camera at funny people. It's very specific, but it's really, once he gets to the U.S., his filmmaking chops just go up several notches almost immediately. The things that do survive from when he was making films at Eagle in 1916 are light years ahead of these split-reel comedies. And then the films, there are films like Your Next, where the, just the opening three or four minutes are just so well made, just in terms of the filmmaking. So I gave a quick thumbnail sketch so people understood why he was important, what the big deal is about Marcel Perez. And I said, you, you may not see the filmmaking chops in Robinet's White Suit, but you will see him execute a fall that I have only seen Buster Keaton do. There's a moment where he's in a big muddy road and he gets run hit by a guy on a bicycle and then somebody else comes along and Perez takes a swing at the guy, spins around, and then his body flips over and up in the air and maybe uh, rotates 180 degrees and he lands on his back. I'm not describing it well, but it's a fall we see Buster do over and over and over. The things that Perez allows to happen to him are phenomenal. And not incidentally, Undercrank has two volumes of Marcel Perez. Oh, yes. And I know that yeah. that film is on one of them. <laughs> yes, it's on volume one. On the, the first volume we had about a half dozen of Ambrosio-made films, which we got from the iFilm Institute. It was great. People got to discover Perez. And I know a friend and a fan who came down to the festival and posted something on Twitter that she picked up one or both of the DVDs of Perez films at Kansas and was slowly going through them and just absolutely loving his films and enjoying getting to see them. Maybe that early phase, uh, Perez, he should have been making TikToks. (laughs) You can take each of the shots from those and cut pieces of, of them out and make a short TikTok video. There's an audience there to be reached. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I'm going to try to figure it out. So it was great that they included Perez. And once again, Denise Morrison said, I first saw this on the silent comedy watch party. (laughs) So it's nice to continue to educate people about Mr. Perez and about the show. So the other big show you had in Kansas was The Goose Woman, which was a very famous film in its day. Yeah, in its day, it's it's not really that all that well known. It is a favorite of Kevin Brownlow's, apparently. Is it not not uh, Clarence Brown that is the director? It's Clarence. Yeah, it's Clarence. So I mean, for if those you look of at you, the cast, yeah, for those yeah. of you who are you know are, are only mild film buffs, this is Garbo's favorite director, and he worked at MGM right through the sound era, right up until the early 1950s. And the Yearling, isn't that? Yes, is that him. That's and that's right. typical. He's very pastoral. 
It only survives, I think, in 16-millimeter prints, and that's what we showed in Kansas. It's a very sensational story, and it was based on a very famous court case of the 1920s, the Hall Mills case. It's a very well-made film, and even in this dupey 16-millimeter print, which may be all that survives, it's still very, very compelling. It's Louise Dresser as the older woman, Jack Pickford, and Constance Bennett. Oh, oh, this is the, she was the one, she's the one in Topper. Yes, that's right. She's the love interest in it. We have a recording of me playing for it, and you hear more of the rapidly shifting moods, but trying to keep it making sense musically so it doesn't become jarring. So was that really your goal or task as the accompanist? It's like, I got to stitch this film together and help make it cohesive. Well, no, in this case, it was really cohesive. It's just that musically, it may if you're not watching the film, what you'll hear is something that sounds not, not disjointed. This is the thing I, I often tell people about silent film music. You may be playing a 16-bar phrase, but if the mood shifts, you do not finish it. <laughs> you shift and move on to the next thing. Otherwise, it becomes obvious to the audience that you've missed something. So you have to just turn on a dime, but still make it work musically by either staying in the same key or going to its relative minor. Or one of the things I learned from listening to a lot of Lee Irwin's recordings is that if you're playing a melodic line that makes sense on the third or fourth note, you can go to a key that starts with that letter. So if you're playing in E flat, you can play E flat F G and then just start playing something in G and just go on in a completely different melody from there. But what what musicians call an unprepared modulation. Right, exactly. But as long as it makes sense melodically, it's smoother, it's not as jarring. So it's not that the film is disjointed, but the emotions constantly change. Mm -hmm. That's the challenge on doing a cue sheet score. The cues, of course, go on for two or three minutes because it's just there to be wallpaper. And then as a conductor or a soloist, you use as much of the cue as you need. A typical cue sheet score for a film that's six reels would have 35 cues in it. My score for Grandma's Boys got 65 cues. Mm-hmm. Like, all right, beat over, new beat, and then I move on to the next piece. What's woven together is, is the flow of the different emotions that go back and forth. So let's hear it. Yeah, here is yours truly at a Steinway D in White Concert Hall at Washburn University in Topeka, Kansas, accompanying segment from The Goose Woman, starring Louise Dresser and directed by Clarence Brown. Louise Dresser 
And Jack Pickford, along with Constance Bennett and everyone's favorite bad guy, Gustav von Seyfertitz. And I think Pop Nichols is in there as well. In The Goose Woman, projected in 16mm at the Kansas Silent Film Festival in Topeka, Kansas. I'm not surprised that uh, Gustav is there. He might have been in the, what the cue we heard because it started with a very lyrical theme, uh-huh. but then it got very brooding and very troubled. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to line the clip up with the phone <laughs> to, to tell you. You know, it's a brooding I, movie. It's a very broody. Yeah, and yeah, you forget how present that guy was in silent films. But there's the moment in Don Juan where John Barrymore transforms his face into Gustav von Sievertitz's face. It's really cool watching him do that. Wow. The film went over really well, and people really, really enjoyed it. And one of the things that I find admirable about the Kansas Silent Film Festival, they've been around for 25 years. They show a lot of silent films you've never heard of that do not have Buster Keaton in them. And people come and they just know, if you're showing this, I know it's going to be good. And a lot of people get to discover stuff, much like what I'm trying to do with Undercrank Productions, finding stuff that you haven't heard of, letting you know it's important to see it, and putting it up so you can discover it and, and to enjoy it and go, oh, I've never heard of this, but boy, that was great. We need to you know? add a title uh, to your uh, your your resume at the, at the beginning. Oh, God, another one? Silent film accompanist, historian, and evangelist. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I've had that moniker applied to me. Uh, somebody posted... <laughs> A picture when I introduced scrambled weddings at Grace Cathedral. Here's Ben Modell preaching the gospel of Edward Everett Horton. <laughs> but you know, the last time I wrote to Walter Couric, I remember writing him a letter and thanking him for showing me silent films all those years when I was growing up. And he wrote back to me and said, for him, showing silent films to me and to other people, he considered it missionary work. <laughs> And that's something that I I try to carry along in, in what I do is is the showing of things to other people who want to see them, and especially in some of the school shows I do, it's it, uh, audience preservation work. It's 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 missionary work in a lot of ways. And I hope all you listeners to this podcast are being missionaries for silent film and for the podcast. Please oh, yes. do go on and rate and review us, not because our vanity needs it. It's just the way the algorithms work. The more people yes, that yes. boost the show, the people that yeah. might stumble over it will have an easier time. It'll pop up in their suggestions more if you put your own guarantee behind it. You know, that's very valuable to the algorithms and us. Yeah, yeah, please feed the algorithm. <laughs> you know, it's up to us fans to make these things pop. The next best thing to telling yourself at the end of the episode, hey, that was a good episode, is to go on and rate it somewhere it is you, you listen to podcasts because it, it definitely makes a difference. So uh, one of the big conversation topics in 2022 is that there are finally two new major books about Buster Keaton. One, Buster Keaton, A Filmmaker's Life, a comprehensive but conventional biography by James Curtis, an excellent biographer, and one of more experimental, perhaps, or more conceptual, a portrait of Buster called Camera Man, that's two words, Buster Keaton, The Dawn of Cinema and the Invention of the 20th Century by Dana Stevens. And you're having both of those authors introduce shows that you're playing for. I was at the Jacob Burns Film Center. This is with Dana Stevens, and um, next week I'm doing a live stream for the Cinema Arts Center where uh, James Curtis will be the guest. It was a great event. It was organized and moderated by Andrew Jupin, who's a programmer at the Jacob Burns Film Center. Dana did a great job introducing the film, talking about her book, and then there was a Q&A session that I was allowed to be part of uh, where a conventional biography might mention something that was going on in society or they were in this town and this thing happened. Dana's book will spend maybe half a chapter or more discussing that particular aspect of society. So it's, it's Buster Keaton's life and filmmaking 
against the backdrop of what the beginnings of the 20th century were in terms of technology and culture. I like that sort of thing because I often will get stuck on a title card with a joke that nobody gets, <laughs> and I'll want to, all right, well, clearly they put this in because it was funny at the time. I have to go look this up. So for a long time, I'd play for the Scarecrow, and this one title gag would just it would just sit there, and I thought, okay, i got to look this up. Buster and Joe, Joe Roberts are holding a picture of Sybil Seeley and arguing, and then a title card says, I don't care who she votes for, I'm still going to marry her. And I put some math together. So what I do now is when I show the Scarecrow, I say, just so you know, there's a title gag in here, and this film was made the year women had the vote and the first time they could vote in a presidential election. That's as far as I get. And then when the title hits the screen, there's a huge laugh. Mm. Dana's book, she really gets into way more details than might normally be in a Keaton biography on the Gary Society or suffragettes or prohibition or or what have you. And and that's one of the things I'm really enjoying about reading her book. The James Curtis book, which I've, I've only gotten a few chapters in, but it's excruciatingly researched because there's just so much more information to be had uh, in the time that has passed since Tom Dardis's book. I think the book's around 800 pages. It's just so so many footnotes and notes, and there's just so much detail. And there's some, a good deal of things that Buster himself believed were true that were things told to him by his father. That, that <laughs> there, are, there are, there's, there's factual, facts you can now look up, Joe Keaton, that, that show, no, this never happened. <laughs> but but at, at the time, you could say, yeah, you know, this happened, and everybody it became part of the legend. What was great is that the Jacob Burns Film Center basically filled their theater. Everybody had their mask on. You had to show proof of vaccination on your way in. But it was just so heartening for all of us to be in their their theater number two, just laughing as an audience together and not on Zoom, watching this fantastic movie from you know 1926 I can, up on a big screen and with live music. It, it was just... I could only be you know, jealous of people seeing those films for the first time and under those conditions. That's just, wow, lucky folks. Yeah. It was a great evening, and and I look forward to doing more of these. I am doing a Kickstarter for a pair of Raymond Griffith features, You'd Be Surprised, and Paths to Paradise. Uh, These have been scanned in 2K or 4K by the Library of Congress from Nitrate in the Paramount Collection. Uh, I got permission from Paramount Pictures to access these, so Raymond Griffith will finally be out on on home video. These are two very funny films, and I've actually heard Ben play for them. You did a Raymond Griffith season a number of years back at The Silent Clowns. Yes, it was the year that The Artist came out, and we did a series called If You Like The Artist, You Love Raymond Griffith, For a comedy star no one had ever heard of, we packed the show and we turned people away twice. We ran Hands Up, Paths to Paradise, You'd Be Surprised, and I think The Nightclub. And again, this is one of these artists that doesn't need explanation, excuse, context. Put the film on, it will play. They're extremely well made. uh, A few of them are directed by Clarence Badger, one of the top silent comedy directors for Paramount. He's got such a an engaging and winning personality and an unusual character. He's really what Max Linder should have turned into when he came to the U.S., but remained, I think, too French to, to adapt to American sensibilities. Raymond Griffith, he had a trim little mustache and an opera cape and a top hat, and he was known as the silk-hatted comedian. And he says one of these wonderful personas where he's just very much unaware. He is a man who lives in his own bubble and, and misses... And nothing bothers nothing, him. Nothing bothers he him. He just floats through everything. Yeah. Not knocking Griffith's great artistry. I think you could take You'd Be Surprised and make a remake of it today. I think it would just stand up. The yeah. twists and turns yeah. in that story are so clever. And what's odd about that picture, it all mostly takes place in one or two rooms in one on a boat. And I thought, oh, this is kind of staged, but it must be based on a stage play. But it's not. And a lot of the plot twists cannot happen on stage. Mm -hmm. It's residing in the silent film universe where things are heard or are not heard or happen faster than than they would in reality. And I think that's the one with the titles by Benchley. Mm -hmm. There's not going to be a limit on backer numbers on this one because I want to be able to have stretch goals like stabilization and cleanup and proper professional grading. Paths to Paradise is tinted. 
And so they're, they're both just really, really funny. So we're continuing to not only expand what people think the landscape of silent film is, but to also fill it in with this project. And then there's, there's another project I'll be working on. I'll talk about it next episode. Going back to Walter Kerr again, he, Griffith, Raymond Griffith was one of the category he called the demi-clowns that he thought came closest to the pantheon of the Chaplin, Keaton, Lloyd, Langton level. He thought Griffith was yeah. almost there. Definitely. And uh, if it were not for his chapter in The Silent Clowns on Griffith and including him in the chapter on Lost Film, and if it were not for the fact that most of Griffith's films are missing, he'd be much better known today, I think. 20 years ago, I was outbid on a still from <laughs> He's a Prince, which is a, lo a lost Raymond Griffith film. And I wrote to whoever had won the auction, and I said, I'm a huge Raymond Griffith fan. I don't need to own the physical object, but if you wouldn't mind sending me a scan, I'd really appreciate it. And <laughs> the email comes back, this is Leonard Malton. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm familiar with your work, and of course I'll send you. So I have a very nice scan of Raymond Griffith in regal robes uh, sitting on a throne from him. He's a prince. So as we've done with Alice Howell and Marcel Perez and some other people, we're looking to write that. And in the same way that I first saw Hands Up at Walter Kerr's house when I was in high school, carrying on him, showing that to me to educate me, and uh, I'm looking to do that for other silent comedy fans. Well, by the hands on my digital watch, I see that we are out of time for this episode. <laughs> so I want to thank you for listening. This has been episode 46 of the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. It's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent film. I'm Ben Modell. I'm a silent film accompanist and historian. That's Kerr Lockhart's dog <laughs> who's held it together just long enough for us to finish, but he clearly has to go out. <laughs> we want to thank you for listening to the podcast. Thank you, Kerr Lockhart, for producing, uh, scheduling, recording, editing and editing and editing, and uh, being a co-conspirator <laughs> on the podcast. Now, it's, it's been great to get back in the saddle, and thanks to you, we're, we're able to turn out episodes on a pretty pretty regular basis now. It's, so thank it's you. It's been a fun conversation today. It has. If you are not already on my email list or following me on Twitter, just go to silentfilmmusic.com where you can see my performance schedule. But if you get on my emails, you will always hear about what's going on because I will send an email to you and you will get it. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Kerr Lockhart. We'll speak with you and play for you again on the next episode of the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. Until next time, I'll see you online or I'll see you at the silence. Bye now.